Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast. I'm James Bergen. Now, whether you're a researcher or have just watched a lot of nature documentaries, it's probable that you've asked one of the longest standing questions in biology. Why are there so many more species in the tropics? Seriously, the diversity of life in the tropics is staggering compared to the cooler regions of our planet, and many hypotheses have been suggested to try and explain this. Maybe because it's warmer and sunnier, the tropics are simply more productive and can support more life. But while that may explain the greater number of individuals, it doesn't really explain the greater number of species. Enter the evolutionary speed hypothesis. This hypothesis has been the dominant idea for several decades, and basically suggests that there are more species in the tropics as warmer environments encourage faster rates of molecular evolution. However, while popular and supported by many small studies and many different species groupings, we still don't know if the evolutionary speed hypothesis is supported across the entire tree of life. Fortunately, that's the question asked by today's paper, simply titled, Is Molecular Evolution Faster in the Tropics? Let's meet the people behind it and find out. I'm Matt Orton. I'm a PhD candidate, and I just started the semester in my PhD. And Matt's the first author of the paper. Um, so my name's Sarah Adamovich. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Integrative Biology at the University of Guelph, as well as the director of the Bioinformatics graduate program here at Guelph. Well, welcome both to the Heredity Podcast. So I guess the first place to start is with the underlying idea of this paper. So why might we expect molecular evolution rates to be faster in the tropics? So this is a hypothesis that's been discussed in the literature for a couple of decades, and there are some good reasons biologically to think that evolution might tick faster in the warmer regions of the world compared to the more polar regions. So first off, at a fundamental level, one might expect that at warmer temperatures, organisms can sustain higher metabolism. And that's particularly the case in ectotherms that rely on their environment for warmth. So if they have higher metabolism, this can be correlated with higher damage to DNA caused by oxidative damage. As well, in the tropics, it's very common for species to have a shorter life cycle, which means the moment of their birth to the moment that they can produce offspring tends to be shorter than in more polar regions. So there's more opportunities for evolutionary change. There's kind of more generations of life happening in the same amount of time in the tropical regions. And also, um, in addition to thinking about evolution itself, this hypothesis has been put forward as one of the potential reasons why there could be higher diversity in the tropics, which is a very common pattern seen across taxonomic groups where very high diversity is seen in the tropics. And then as you move into temperate and then polar regions, diversity declines. And one thing that's quite interesting in this is that you mentioned there that it's this idea has been around for a couple of decades now. So in this paper, were you questioning it or was it just that there wasn't a huge amount of data to support it? So that's an interesting question. Um, when we were just chatting about that, that when we set out to embark on this study, we weren't specifically setting out to challenge that idea. That wasn't necessarily our motivation for doing it because the idea itself made so much sense. But what we had noticed in the literature is that typically tests of that idea have involved quite a small sample size, and as well, only certain taxonomic groups had been included. And just with growth in DNA sequence databases, we thought it was a great opportunity to look at that question with a much larger sample size of species, as well as sample size of different 
types of life forms that hadn't been looked at before. And when we started getting answers, we were surprised by the answers that we were getting, leading us to check and recheck the answers and the work that we were doing underlying the analysis. And as well, it led us to incorporate multiple different types of analyses. So looking at sister species inhabiting different areas, but also looking at the entire phylogeny or the entire tree of life of the organisms we were including. And when different methods started to converge on a similar answer, then we became more confident in our final results. But interestingly, we hadn't set out thinking that we were presenting a grand challenge to the original idea, just, yeah, that we wanted to test it with a lot more data than had been possible in the past. That's a really good way of going about it. And what's really interesting there is that you mentioned the sort of wealth of data that you'd use because you did have a really impressive data set in terms of the number of samples and the number of species. So how did you go about assembling these data and how did you decide what sequences you were going to include? So for this study, we decided to focus on the DNA barcode marker. So very much like product barcodes that you'd find in a supermarket to keep track of products, a DNA barcode is a standard part of a gene that has naturally occurring variability. And we can use that DNA signature to tell what species an individual belongs to. So there's a particular region of the mitochondrial genome, CO1, that was selected to be the standard barcode marker for animals because it sort of hits a sweet spot at genetic diversity. It has not too much variability within species, but it tends to have more variability between species. So it's very good for, say, identifying unknown individuals. And it's used widely in research, such as in ecology, and also increasingly used various societally relevant applications. So one that's gotten a lot of attention recently in the Canadian media would be identifying fisheries products. So for example, researchers may go into a marketplace and survey fillets and say, are these what they're labeled as? So there's been growing interest internationally in DNA barcoding. And one of the consequences of that is that many people around the world are contributing data to public sequence databases. And we were able to draw on that for this project. So the data we actually analyzed were collected by hundreds of different researchers doing field collecting and then sequencing of their samples and putting them in public databases. And we adapted that large, rich source of information for our own study in molecular biodiversity and molecular evolution. So it sort of shows that what can happen when people work together to build a resource like that. So we relied mostly on this database called BOL, the Barcode of Life database. And we took CO1 barcode data from that database. And one of the things about BOL that's really great is it has uh, geographical coordinate data for all the sequence records that are on that database. So that allows us to, to uh, look at latitudinal differences between record IDs on that database. So we downloaded data for five major animal phyla, Arthropoda, Cordata, Annelida, Mollusca, and what was the other? Echinodermata, yeah. And (laughs) that actually took a very long time. Once we did that, we did several quality control steps on the sequences. We took all of those sequences, broke them down by taxonomic group, because a lot of the taxonomic groups were too large 
to look at, for instance, Insecta, we had to break that down into individual families because we were literally looking at like millions of different records. Yeah, in- insects are very, very diverse. <laughs> yeah, and insects were so large, actually, that we had to subset by geographical region as well. But for other groups, they were small enough that we could just look at them as a whole globally. And so once we had subsetted by the, the taxonomic group and the geographical division that we wanted, we did a distance calculation in terms of genetic distance. And after that, we did the same thing, but with latitude. And then once, once we had the genetic differences and the latitudinal differences, then we could build these species pairings where you have one species that is from a tropical region and another species that's from a more temperate region. So they had to be very closely related, but at the same time, they had to be separated by a minimum of 20 degrees in latitude. And we looked at the branch length between each lineage of that pairing relative to an outgroup that was assigned algorithmically. And depending on whether or not the lower latitude lineage had a higher branch length or a lower branch length relative to the outgroup, we could determine which one of that species pairing was evolving at a faster rate. That encompasses over 8,000 different species pairings that we tested, which is a 250-fold increase in the sample size compared to a lot of the papers that were done before ours. So it's quite a significant increase in the number of pairings that we tested. Like that's a really fantastic and detailed overview of your methods, but I'm really curious now to find out about what it was you were actually finding. I mean, you mentioned all these different groups and you mentioned this like big geographic scale. Where are you finding that molecular evolution rates were faster in the tropics? Uh, so one notable group was echinoderms, also known as sea stars. We found there was a statistically significant trend where we were noticing faster rates of molecular evolution in the lower latitude lineage versus the higher latitude lineage. But the thing with that group is that although we did find a statistically significant relationship there, that group had a very small sample size. And so we don't know, you know, had there been more sequences in that group if that relationship would have still held. We did also notice a statistically significant pattern in fishes as well, and arthropods as a whole. But the thing with arthropods is once you break it down into individual groups, some of those groups still retain that significant pattern, whereas other groups didn't. So looking at it from just from the phylum level is a little bit deceiving because once you break it down further, there might be certain specific groups that don't hold to that overall pattern you see at the phylum level. Okay, cool. And I guess one sort of obvious question that jumps on from that is that talked about the echinoderms and the fishes, and they're both aquatic and the arthropods and they're invertebrates, obviously. So I wonder if there's anything about these groups that you think might be causing this higher rate of evolution over, I mean, you mentioned chordates, so the vertebrate animals, and I'm assuming you didn't find this trend there. So that's a good question. So overall, when taken in totality, we really actually found only a very, very weak trend of higher rates of molecular evolution in the tropics, that in slightly more than half the cases, the tropical species had a higher rate of molecular evolution, while its paired temperate or polar counterpart had a little bit lower rate. But in about 48% of cases, we found the reverse. So actually, it was close to 50-50. 
just a slight edge uh, for the tropical lineages, but close to 50-50, which was not necessarily what we were originally predicting. We were predicting a much stronger pattern. But what we did notice is that there were some taxon-specific variability in what we found. As Matt mentioned earlier, one of the groups where we found a higher rate in the tropics was echinoderms, which includes sea stars, sea urchins, and their relatives. So in that group, there was a higher rate in the tropics. And that sort of begs the question, why might that be the case? So we'd be hesitant to draw too much of a conclusion about why when there was kind of a modest sample size. But based on thinking about biological variability in these systems, one of the factors that I think could be driving that would be quite a bit faster generation time in the tropics in echinoderms compared to in polar regions. Because a number of our you know, non-tropical lineages of these echinoderms were more in polar regions where organisms would have much longer life cycles. By contrast, the difference in life cycle length uh, might be smaller in some of the other taxonomic groups that were we're looking at. So that's just a hypothesis about what might be driving the difference. It might be driven by the extent of variability in life cycle variation, but that's just a hypothesis. And that's one of the things I find pretty fun about this type of research is that even though you, we somewhat answered one question, it led to a number of further follow-on questions, which actually others in our research group are currently investigating, actually. What are some of the biological and other environmental factors beyond living at a particular latitude that might be driving variability in rates of molecular Evolution. So really, we sort of, you know, answered one question, but uncovered three new questions, which I always find really fun. That was Matthew Orton, a PhD candidate and bioinformatician, and Professor Sarah Adamovich, both from the University of Guelph. Along with Jacqueline May, Winfred Lee, and David Lee, they are two of the authors on the recent heredity paper, Is Molecular Evolution Faster in the Tropics? Now, obviously, the scale of this paper means that we've only touched upon it here. So go and give the full manuscript to read. And, as a bonus, all of their code is available on GitHub. I adored hearing about this work, and I hope you did too. But if you want more genetics, why not jump across to our fellow Genetics Society podcast, Genetics Unzipped. Here's Kat Arney with a reminder of why any genetics lover needs to go and give it a listen. British geneticist William Bateson is widely credited with bringing Gregor Mendel's work to the attention of the scientific world. Apparently, he was inspired by reading a copy of Mendel's now-famous pea-breeding paper on the train. It's a nice story, but did it really happen? In the latest episode of Genetics Unzipped, we're continuing our series exploring 100 ideas in genetics by retracing Bateson's legendary journey, seeking the secrets of snapdragons and building an army of minions. Genetics Unzipped is brought to you by the Genetics Society. Listen and download now from geneticsunzipped.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find Genetics Unzipped on all good podcast platforms, so why not go and give it a listen? Actually, why not give it a listen right now, as that's us done for today. You can find the paper featured on the Heredity website. That's nature.com forward slash hdy. And while you're there, you can also find out details about submitting your work for publication in the journal. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society. If you want to keep up to date with the podcast, you can follow us on Twitter. That's at Heredity Journal. And if you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I'm James Bergen. Tune in next time.